God damn you. It is a little strange that we have such an aversion to slavery uh, because historically there have been abuses for many people, poor people, perhaps people who weren't educated, perhaps people who had no other opportunity. Working for a gentle, caring, loving master was the best of all possible worlds. Campus is a loaded minefield. There are girls everywhere. And it's guaranteed that I will pass some attractive girls as I walk in between classes. If it's not requiring her to sin, but simply hurting her, then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season, and she endures perhaps being smacked one night, and then she seeks help from the church. It would be hard for me to see how a woman could be a drill sergeant, right face, left face, keep your mouth shut, private, over, over men without violating their sense of manhood and her sense of womanhood. Go home. They want power, not equality. This is the highest location they can ascend to that power in the evangelical church. We are meaning makers and storytellers, and the stories we tell ourselves are the stories that shape our lives. We need each other badly or goodly. We need each other, and we keep forgetting again and again and again that we are loved. And we say, no, I'm no good. No, I messed it all up. No, I feel so guilty. No, I feel so ashamed. We need each other. In the midst of this difficult, dark, and often violent world, we need to have a community of support to which we can call all people and be a community of hope. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Opening. And this is episode 12. I am calling this Faith and Justice, writing from our head and our hurt. So I'm coming to you from my garden right now, and I decided to try a different microphone out. It's more of an outside microphone, so just wanted to hear how it sounded. I'm not planning on doing the, the podcast from out here regularly, but just wanted to hear how the microphone sounded. So today I have a special interview for you with someone named Wendell Griffin. He is a a U.S. circuit judge and a pastor, and I thought it would be really good to hear his perspectives on justice because we have quite a few controversial issues going on right now that, um, that are related to justice in the United States today. And so we don't necessarily get into a lot of the particulars, uh, with the current conversations, but I thought it would be good to hear the perspectives of a judge and a pastor about how he thinks about faith and justice. So I met Wendell Griffin through a fellowship that I did with Baptist News Global in the summer of 2021. And we had this conversation and it actually wasn't meant to be a podcast. We were just going to have a conversation about religion writing, but, um, and I was mainly there to learn. So this isn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have the feel of a normal podcast interview. So, but I was just soaking up what he was saying, and and he had a lot of really profound things to say. So I asked him if I could share it elsewhere, and he said yes. And so that's why I decided to share it here. 
And I'm, I'm planning to break it up into about two or three episodes, but if you want to hear and see the entire interview right now, you can go to my YouTube channel, and I'll have link, I have links to that on my website, which is rickpitcock.com. But in the meantime, here is part one of my discussion with Wendell Griffin. How are your children, your wife? They're doing well. I've got five kids under the age of 11, and so um, I'm a stay-at-home dad, and then, but my wife has the day off today, so she's watching them in the house, so. You have, you and your wife have a full-time job parenting yes we definitely do so and you have the advantage of being able to watch them grow up yep yeah it's been nice i i was in the cleaning industry for like 17 years and then um but we were just really struggling financially and um it's starting to get to me physically too and everything and so uh, that, but my wife had a degree in interior design, so um, December of 2019, we ended up making the switch, and she got an interior design job, and I came home to stay home with the kids, and it ended up being perfect timing, because then the pandemic hit, and my uh, a lot of my customers were commercial customers that shut down, so oh, we would have gotten hammered financially. Then. Yeah, yeah, it, it was serendipity that you... you you know sort of took a hiatus from the business when you did yeah yeah every once in a while i'm like how in the world did that work out because that that's kind of scary to go back and think if that didn't work out um where we would have been so so it was already tough enough so now you're into religious journalism religious writing yeah yeah that's been fun um but uh, I've always wanted to write, and I've kind of done some blogging here and there. And then um, I was at Northern Seminary for the last three years. Yeah. And then um, uh, when I uh, when I stepped down from my business to stay at home, I started writing blogging some more. And then Baptist News saw one of my articles about John MacArthur, and they really liked it. So they decided to post it and then um, just kept on writing for him for about the last year or so. I've got to ask you how you made the, if I may, how you made the journey from Bob Jones University to Baptist <laughs> News. If that's too perfect. Yeah. Oh, no, it's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up um, very independent Baptist, um, KJV only type circles, you know. Um, and so Southern Baptists were liberals to us, uh, which was a bad thing. Um, even John MacArthur, we were told was a compromiser. And so, uh, I went to Bob Jones and, um, and then I, uh, during my time there, I, I grew up very terrified of, um, my dad believed that you could lose your salvation, basically the, the drop of a hat. So I was always very scared growing up, um, especially with purity culture and left behind culture and everything. So, um, I went to Bob Jones and, uh, changed theologically to um, this very conservative evangelical Calvinist type position. And um, so then my wife and I got married and we moved out to Denver to help start a church. And we were out there for seven years. And um, 
and then our pastor ended up getting divorced after that. And we, uh, we were out there and, um, and just decided um, maybe God's calling it a chapter in our lives. And so we decided to come back home to South Carolina. And so I was at a mega church here, volunteering, leading worship. And, and then um, we had a worship school come in and they were going to take a, a number of us on a year long journey uh, through development and stuff. And, and they told us on the first night that we needed to have God awareness and self-awareness and I thought, well, my God awareness is totally fine, but I've never thought about my self-awareness before. <laughs> so um, that night, uh, I just broke down because they, they started, they had us write down our top 10 high points and top 10 hard times in life. And like, I had no idea until seeing it on paper, how hurt I was and how much I was using my theology to numb my wounds. And so um, basically over the next year, I started having to read authors that I would have previously called heretics and um, started to have to face the wounds that I had. And um, as that self-awareness began to deepen and grow, my God awareness started having some questions. And, um, but I really wanted to be on staff full-time at a church somewhere. And eventually uh, that uh, I, I, I couldn't, get anybody to hire me because of my resume I'd always been in church planting or in the cleaning industry and um and then I uh eventually died to that dream and when I died to that I felt free to ask the questions I had been suppressing and so that's when I ended up going to Northern Seminary and my theology just completely really went down to the ground and just started to you know piece things together from there so So you had a theolo theological overhaul. Oh, yeah. 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 And it really, but it began, um, it wasn't like an intellectual pursuit for me. Initially, it was more of a, um, it was a spiritual healing through self-awareness that then opened me up to see and love my neighbors as myself. And so um, that's where it, where it grew out of. Mm. Is very much like the inward journey of Howard Thurman that he talks about, you know, and and then it just grew from there. So you wouldn't have read much Thurman at Bob Jones University, I imagine. No, I never even heard of him until I went to Northern. So, <laughs> let alone I, like a James Cone. <laughs> I find out about Thurman at Northern. Yeah. So my um. I had a theology class and I was nervous about it because um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to just take another systematic theology class where I'm hearing, you know, all these conservative evangelical white guys categorize everything for me, but they hired a, um, a professor for it that had graduated from Vanderbilt and had specialized, like he wrote his doctoral dissertation on Howard Thurman. And so he, um, he basically developed two entire classes about how to think theologically from the perspective of where like liberationist theology has more of a formative role than just something that's added on at the end of a theology class. And so um, we had, we were reading quite a bit of different perspectives in that. And, um, and then, yeah, so he was the one who introduced me there. I mean, a lot of the classes there have had, they would have us read liberationist theologies, um, but 
as part of the reading, but his was very formative on, you know, building, you can actually build theology from this perspective. So that was really helpful. I'm still pretty new to it all, but. Aren't we all? Yep. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it, I just graduated in June and it wasn't like a, a career move for me. It was more the, it was more just where I needed to be in my journey at that season of life. And it's something I've always wanted to do. So. The journey continues. Yep. Good for you. Yeah. Well, what can an old worn out preacher renegade in Arkansas do for you? Yeah. Um, so basically like how we've done some of these conversations is kind of shared our story and then just kind of see how the conversation goes from there. And um, particularly like, maybe like what kind of writing you've been doing or um, how your writing has grown from your, from your journey. Um, just kind of see where it goes, kind of open-ended from there. I come at my religious writing probably in some of the most unorthodox kind of ways compared to many people with whom you may speak. Mm -hmm. My primary uh, academic training is in law and jurisprudence and political science. I started divinity school in Southern Baptist uh, seminary extension program after I'd become a partner in a law firm. And uh, the Southern Baptists were going through their inerrancy mess. And uh, I had enough of that to realize that I didn't want any more of it. Mm -hmm. So I dropped that from my life and became a Cokesbury junkie. Uh, there was a Cokesbury bookstore back in the days when they actually had bookstores, Cokesbury bookstores. There was a Methodist church, First Methodist Church in Little Rock was down the street from my law firm. And so I I became a self-read after my I got through my my Southern Baptist experience, I got self-read in systematic theology and comparative theology and liberation theology and other things. And uh, at the same time, I was a pastor and I was doing some writing for a black newspaper, a black weekly here in Little Rock, up the, an article series called The Pastor's Pen. Uh, the paper was, had been owned and founded by Daisy Bates, who was a, the Little Rock the lady who, uh, and with her husband, led to Rock Nine. And Ms. Bates was still alive and she resurrected her paper in her last years. And I got a chance to write for them. I got into that and uh, what became for a, a fledgling weekly column turned into eventually uh, Ethics Daily, now Good Faith Media, 
uh, got wind of me and began to and asked me to do some things. And I started submitting some sermon manuscripts, sermon manuscripts, and some columns to, to get the, to Ethics Daily when Robert Parham was there. Robert Parham was uh, was the executive editor there, and I did that for several years, and. Uh, In 2016, after the 2016 election, uh, in early November, uh, I got the wild notion that I would take some of my writings and put them in a collection and publish a book. You know, I didn't think anybody would read it and I didn't think anybody would publish it, but I figured, oh, what the heck. And to my surprise, uh, Judson accepted the manuscript and uh, agreed to publish it. And so my book came out, uh, The Fierce Urgency of Prophetic Hope in early 2017. And it was, it that's the rest is, I suppose, history. Uh, Good faith yeah. media, good faith media became what Ethics Daily was, and Baptist News Global uh, Baptist News reached out to me and asked me asked first of all to do uh, a feature, and I did not believe that I was the kind of person that needed to be featured because I'm something of a renegade. And uh, um, I was I was corrected in my thinking. Some friends told me to, to get over myself. And, uh, and after that, when David Wilkinson, uh, who was Mark Wingfield's predecessor, pushed that envelope. Uh, I uh, and Mark began to ask me to write. I began doing some writing. My writing basically focuses on the issue intersection of of faith and justice uh, from a liberationist standpoint. Uh, I have the distinct pleasure of being from the state that James Cone was born in, and James Cone went to school in Little Rock, Arkansas, and taught in Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, I have the blessing of having, I didn't go to a seminary where liberation theology was an add-on I read Cone and read Cornell West and read Michael Lyric Dyson and read other theologians mainly because I didn't know better. <laughs> I didn't know mm-hmm. any better. Uh, and I happen to believe that that's how theology ought to be thought through. 
uh, what some people call contextual theology. I call, you know, you know theology from the street. Uh, mm -hmm. And I write about things, the intersection of faith and justice, as it affects people like me, but also people who have suffered the experiences of being marginalized, of being wounded by faith, of being wounded by what I now call hateful faith. Uh, and we now have a world, a society, really, that is being driven by hateful faith. And so those are the driving forces about which I write now. Uh -huh. The struggle I have with it is having to, uh, having to, uh, having to dial back my anger. Yeah. There are, there are many ways, I suppose, that people get inspiration in writing. Uh, I still believe that I cannot write what I cannot feel. Uh, I write from my head, but I also write from my hurt and from the pain I see other people experiencing. And uh, I have lived in a period of time when I have seen religion underperform uh, and disregard the real prophets of our time. Now, I grew up watching Martin Luther King Jr. during the 60s and remember where I was when, I, when King was killed. I was sitting in my, with my father at the dining room table when the news came on him, he looked at me and I looked at him. He said, well, he got him. Uh, and so from Martin King and Malcolm X and the intersection of King and Malcolm and then James Cone and Samuel DeWitt Proctor and Gardner Taylor. Uh, notice I didn't mention Billy Graham. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and... And uh, and these giants, and then I came to came to know Henry and Ella Mitchell, and began to meet some of the giant women, black women, who were in ministry, uh, Linda Hollies and Ella Mitchell, uh, and my worldview widened. I grew up Southern Black Baptist, uh, King James Version, National Baptist, uh, you know, basically white Baptist blackened. Mm -hmm. uh, the same convention that had ousted Martin Luther King Jr. because of his social justice focus. And as I came to understand 
that and dealt with the tension in my own spirit between the traditionalism, the traditional mindset, uh, the pietistic notion of faith that defines a lot of black religion versus the prophetic expression of faith that King and Malcolm X and Gardner Taylor uh, and Samuel de Proctor and, uh, and the others led. I was, I was drawn toward the prophetic and away from the pietistic. Uh, it was an easy progression for me, but as a writer, that progression helped influence the way I express my faith in words. And so this is a meandering way of saying, I never thought of myself as a religious writer until uh, people told me, you need to write, man. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> people were saying, you, you, you've got all this stuff and you, you, you've written all these columns and you, you write these sermons, you live these sermons, you need to write. And my dear friend, Alan Buzak, uh, God bless him, and Dr. J. Alfred Smith Sr. from Oakland sort of nudged me even farther. J. Alfred, in a kindly rabbi kind of way, and Alan, as a big brother saying, you better start doing this. You need to start doing this. Uh, and so I've, I've done it. I have consistently wrestled with the notion that if I don't write, I am I am bearing the light that God has given me. Mm -hmm. Even though I, I, have a, I have had to wrestle with being comfortable seeing myself as a writer, uh, a theological source, a, a public theologian. Emily Town pushes me and 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 Alan Buzak pushes me. And so all these people who push me, and I think, well, these, these folks are pushing me. I guess I better not I better not disregard them, but I sure don't feel like I'm as <laughs> I'm I'm as worthy of being read as they think I'm I should be writing. But uh, I'm talking, yeah. and so I'm talking. I'm talking. I'm talking to Rich Pitcock, Pitcock, and I'm wondering, what's a guy from Delight, Arkansas, <laughs> doing talking to to a theologian about being a religious writer? Yeah, 
Well, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a theologian, but unless... Oh, we well, now, come on degree. now. Come <laughs> on now, Rick. 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 What, 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 what do you call somebody who thinks about God and life? Mm-hmm. But if not a theologian. Yep. So for as one person who gives who, who's an expert in self-deprecation to another, uh, <laughs> let's let's give each other some grace, okay? Yeah, definitely. Give yourself some grace, brother. Yep. I wonder like what you're you're talking about some of that struggle that you have between the pietistic and the prophetic and you felt more attracted to the prophetic what i'm i'm curious like how the pietistic side um like what is the what is that exactly that you weren't drawn to is that more of like the typical systematic theologian ideas type person who's not necessarily connected to real life hurts that is the theological bias uh, mm-hmm. uh, and in a real sense, I resented it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was a, it, it, I was offended by it because I kept asking myself, I mean, when I was when I was moving away from the Southern Baptist notions of looking at stuff. I started, I, I was reading Reinhold Neighbor, and I was thinking, wait a minute. I moved from Reinhold Neighbor to James Cone, and James Cone was more, Reinhold Neighbor was, was more, more relevant to me than Paul Tillich. Mm-hmm. Certainly more relevant to me than Charles Hodge. <laughs> and James Cone was more relevant to me than Neighbor. And it was the fact that neighbor and Cone were wrestling with the ethics of faith, the ethics of our relationship with God, that love of God and love of neighbor as being part of the same construct and not not sacred versus secular or social versus pietistic. You know, they're, they're all one and the same. And mm-hmm. so I could not, I could, I could not, I could not look at theology with the, the pietistic kinds of emphasis that one might traditionally think of in systematic theology. Okay, yeah. yeah. Let's talk about salvation. Let's talk about the doctrine of sin. Let's talk about all these doctrines. But when you're li- when you're dealing with the American form of apartheid, that's been that's been sacralized by theologians, mm-hmm. and that has been blessed by everybody or ignored by the folks who are supposed to be the the paragons of ministry, uh, whether they're black or white, whether you're talking about Joseph H. Jackson in the National Baptist tradition, or you're talking about Billy Graham 
uh, in the white tradition, you're talking about leading religious figures who want to talk about Jesus and salvation and God, but do not want to talk about the ills of life that were the things that are defining hurt and pain and struggle for so much of the world. And so uh, that pietistic focus just didn't, didn't appeal to me. I went to law school because I wanted to make, I wanted to make a difference in the world. I didn't want to spend my time thinking about jurisprudence, although I do. I wanted to spend my time thinking about ways to right wrongs, to do justice, uh, to restructure dysfunctional systems or, or to dismantle systems of oppression. And one of the systems of oppression I've come to understand was this is the religious system of oppression that basically sees religion as a way of evading responsibility mm-hmm. for social ills or disarming people who are from the responsibility of being co-laborers with God in the work of justice and grace and mercy in the world. I don't think that the church has integrity to speak any good news at all until the church actually understands the reality that it is living and has crafted bad news in public policy. It has established theological foundations for oppression that have lived throughout the times and only changed shape over the generations, but has not been repented of. Bad theology always produces diminished psychology. Diminished psychology produces dysfunctional sociology. Dysfunctional sociology always produces oppressive anthropology, and then they always produce oppressive economics and ideologies. It all flows from bad theology. Your notion of God is wrong or flawed. Your notion of self and others and power is wrong. Thank you for listening to the opening podcast with Rick Pitcock. The opening is a podcast that deconstructs the power dynamics of religious hierarchies and opens us up to healthy relationship. For more information about today's episode, please check out rickpitcock.com and follow on social media at Rick Pitcock.